Hi, and welcome to The Brain Made Plain. I'm your host, Jonathan Peel, and joining me today is Dr. Lauren Whitehurst. Lauren, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. To start with, I wonder if you could just um, tell us a little bit about your research and and the things that you're studying. Yeah, sure. So um, my basic research interests are surround the role of sleep for cognition. Um, so a lot of times we think about sleep as this thing that we do in a 24-hour cycle. We fall asleep at night. We kind of disconnect from the world around us. We don't really um, think about that the brain is a very active uh, and it's very active during sleep. Um, we just kind of disconnect from the world and we wake up the next morning. Sometimes we feel refreshed. Sometimes we wish we got a little bit more. Um, but, you know, that, that time happens for all of us. It's something that we share. Um, but what's really interesting for me is that there's so many different um, things happening in the brain as well as in the body while we're sleeping. And the activity that's occurring during that time has really interesting implications for what happens to us when we're awake how we interact with the world, um, how we learn and remember things. Um, and it also has really, really large implications for our general health um, over our lifespan. So my research kind of focuses on um, how to understand sleep, what about sleep matters, what makes sleep good, quote unquote, um, and how that can imp- um, have implications for our general health um, and our well-being, as well as more specifically our cognitive health. Mm. When you, I don't know what age you sort of got interested in research or started thinking about that, but did you sort of get interested in the brain first and then, you know, sleep and how that affects cognition? Or was it like, you know, did you focus on sleep and then kind of come to the brain later? Yeah, that's such a, that's such a good question. So I actually came to sleep really late. <laughs> I should say I came to science actually quite late. Um, I have an interesting kind of trajectory to neuroscience. So I was I was convinced even throughout most of my undergraduate career that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, so I came to science quite late. Um, not until my senior year in college did I actually take a course. It was a sleep seminar. Um, and I took a course that like really just kind of t- like turned my whole ideas around. Um, mm-hmm. I really got interested in the the brain more broadly, but really kind of what about sleep is interesting. Um, and I think what what really changed it for me was um, all of the many ways that sleep interacts, a kind of interdisciplinary way in which you can study the body through looking at sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I guess I could say I kind of came to sleep first and then cognition in the brain a little bit later. Um, but I guess it, in the best way to say that they were intertwined, right? You couldn't mm-hmm. really think about sleep without thinking about the brain. So mm-hmm. I, they kind of happened at the same time for me. So one of the things which you kind of touched on, but that always, I, I think, increasingly uh, interests me about sleep is, is the point you touched on about sort of like losing, well, sort of sleep is an altered state of consciousness that yeah. a lot of, um, a lot of what, uh, so in the classes that I teach, a lot of what we talk about in terms of um, the brain and kind of um, how the brain acts relates to processing things in the environment. So we talk mm-hmm. about the visual system and how the eyes, you know, the retina first gets the information and it goes to visual cortex. And then we can kind of build up to objects and faces and houses and so on. But, mm-hmm. but sleep, of course, we're not aware of what's going on because we're not conscious, sort of like by definition, you don't have this uh, environmental awareness. Uh, right. And so I do think it sometimes gets shortchanged, you know, just mm-hmm. from the broader 
yeah. uh, kind of cognitive neuroscience discussion because because of this you know lack of awareness. So I, I don't yeah. know. Do you do you find that when you when you think about it or yourself or talk to people about it that they you know I, it almost takes them a minute to kind of get into get into it. Yeah, you know what? It's so funny that you say that because from a from a cognitive neuroscience standpoint, I think you're right. From like the academic. Um, my my academic interactions with people mm-hmm. who are not sleep researchers, a hundred percent, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like, oh yeah, and then you sleep, and then you wake up, and you keep doing the wake stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you keep doing the things that matter to the brain. Right. Right. Um, but from like a lay person or like just a, a conversation with regular people, that it like I have never met someone that I told that I was I study sleep, and they're mm-hmm. they're like, oh no big deal, no no interest. Right. Everyone is like intensely interested in like, oh, my, have had a sleep story, right? I think it kind of speaks to the universal nature. Mm-hmm. of my of this discipline and that everyone is interested in the um in how it impacts them yet they don't really understand because we don't think about it so much as um as academics we don't really push it in the neuroscience um mm-hmm. in our kind of you know our 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 classwork right that mm-hmm. people don't really think about it as much and they don't really understand what's happening in the brain during during this time um and how it impacts so much of the rest of their life so much of their waking experience mm-hmm. So where do you think is sort of a good entry point to think about sleep and cognition, either like where you started thinking about it or where you just think is the most, you know, the most relevant? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I can answer that in two ways. So the first way is the way that I started thinking about it. So I actually um, came to sleep and cognition in graduate in graduate school, so I my first introduction to was really to sleep and kind of the biophysical psychological um, nature of sleep, what it does to, to to our body, what it does to the way that we think, um, and so you can see that's kind of a natural transition to cognition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And really through the the way you feel when you're sleep deprived, right? So when you don't get enough sleep, I think you might have an acute experience with this after having twins. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get enough sleep, just the, the, the universal impact it has on the way that you experience your world that day, you know, mm-hmm. the negative affect that's sometimes associated with it, sometimes the euphoria of sleep deprivation, right? The way that you kind of feel so good mm-hmm. um, for a little bit when you're mm-hmm. a little bit deprived. Um, and just the, the ways in which it yeah, impacts your, your experience, the psychology of the impact of sleep deprivation was really fascinating for me. And that took me down this path of kind of um, thinking about um, uh Really, my, my, my main, well, most of my work is really thinking about the ways in which we consolidate memories. Um, and so how good sleep or bad sleep, and, and I define, we can define that in various ways. I think the sleep world is very young, so we kind of figure out different ways to define that, but, um, impacts the way that we really experience the world, either our previous experience of the world, how we bring that with us forward into our next day, mm-hmm. or how we experience the world in the moment and how we then, um, incorporate our previous experiences into our moment. Um, and sleep seems to be really relevant to how we um, form memories. And so that's kind of how I I got interested in it was really through that memory and memory consolidation um, narrative. Um, but then I would say where the where the field is going or where I where I think we can really start um, to bring different things together is thinking about sleep outside of just a, a brain region and trying to realize, really recognize kind of the systems that are engaged in sleep and how that might impact um, cognition, various types of cognition. A lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of the um, 
work so far has been really centered on memory consolidation, but I think there is quite a bit of evidence that's now uh, um, kind of um, building up that supports sleep for various types of cognitive processes. So I think mm-hmm. that's that's also where it's going a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So memory consolidation is a term that comes up a lot in, in different contexts. Can you just give an example of what you mean by that? Yeah, just try to give a very a really simple example. So as we're walking throughout the, the world, we are engaging various things, right? We're encountering different experiences. And one of the things that our brains are really kind of built to do and are really good at is taking in those those experience, building patterns around those experiences. And that's what we call encoding, taking in information from the environment. Um, and then we want to, once we bring that information in, for us to be able to use it later, we have to store it away somewhere. We have to place it in the brain. Um, and in a sense, that's what we call consolidation. We, we place it somewhere so we can utilize it in the long term. Um, and so that storage process in the brain, that, that taking that information that we learned and putting it away um, is what we would consider consolidation. And then later, when we're triggered or um, need to use that information to navigate maybe something that that, uh, that we come across in our, in our world, whether it be, let's say, information for a test, um, as you're studying, right, you studied that information, you put it away, and now you're triggered by a question on an exam. You say, okay, let me let me find that information. You retrieve that information and use it. But without that storage process, without putting that information away in the brain somewhere, we wouldn't be able to then retrieve it later when we, when we were triggered for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was interested in what you said about sort of moving from um, particular brain regions or, or even particular cognitive tasks towards a more uh, systems level perspective. Uh, and I think also, you know, what you said before about people having a really intuitive sense about sleep, how sleep affects them. And I guess, mm-hmm. you know, if you asked me how I feel on days when I, when I think I'm sleep deprived, it's not like, oh, my memory consolidation is bad, but everything right. else is normal, right? It does feel like um, there are these really broad effects. So, yeah. So, how do you think about sleep from it? Like, what is, what does systems level mean, I guess, in this context? I think, um, it's a hard question to answer, but it's something that I, I, I believe my um, more recent work is trying to tap into in various ways. Um, so I think when you think when we understand that we don't feel good after we don't sleep well, um, and maybe it's cumulative, right? Like maybe one night of bad sleep isn't the worst, you know, you don't feel great, but two nights or three nights of bad sleep really starts to impact you. You start mm-hmm. to feel, you might, might have more negative affect. You don't really want to be bothered. You might actually have a shorter fuse, right? So when things happen, um, you're driving in traffic and you're not, and you haven't slept really well, maybe most days, not a big deal. Someone cuts you off, but if you're really sleep deprived, you might have a, a more enhanced emotional reaction to that mm-hmm. might be harder for you to remember things as you're engaging with someone. You can imagine after not getting good sleep, you have a presentation at work and it's kind of hard for you to remember those things um, that you, that you had been working on for the previous days. And you also might not feel great. Maybe you feel a little dehydrated. Maybe you're, um, Maybe you feel like you're you might be having some like heart palpitations. Maybe your heart's racing a little bit more than it usually does. And so when I think about what happens to the body when you don't get enough sleep, it's not just impacting your memory. It's not just impacting your um, your cognitive capacity. It's really impacting it both the body and the brain. Um, and what does that mean for health and cognition um, broadly? But I think moving from cognition to more kind of health perspective, um, what does that mean for our um, our systems and our body? So what we know is that when we lose sleep, 
We have um, our hearts. We have impacts on our heart. We have impacts on our immune system. This is really relevant right now during kind of the COVID mm-hmm. pandemic. Um, we have impacts to our cognition. We have impacts to um, the ways in which our, our body functions. Sleep is a homeostatic process. It tries to keep us balanced, our bodies balanced. Um, and so without, without that, it's really impacting various systems. And so from my perspective, those various systems feed into cognition, right? So the ways in which our heart change, the heart rate changes, the way that oversleep, how we regulate that feeds into um, our body's ability to mobilize energy, to, um, to respond to the environment, to take in information from the environment. And so all of those things um, contribute to the way in which we experience our lives. Um, and so that's kind of what I mean by moving from one system impacting this thing and really trying to get a really clear understanding of that, which is vitally important. Don't get me wrong. That's vitally important to really understand the depth of process, um, to understand depth of process. But it's also really interesting to start putting those things together. Um, how do these things interact with one another and not understanding just one thing in isolation only understand that isolation and then try to place it into a broader, um, a broader model is really kind of, what I hope to do with the work that I'm, I'm moving forward in my lab. Mm-hmm. That's great. I also, I wonder too, um, you kind of brought up this point uh, a little bit, but it's not really a state versus trait issue, but in a, in a mm-hmm. sense you can have one night of bad sleep and that can affect, you know, the next day um, mm-hmm. in terms of like your momentary reactions or, or, you know, irritability or cognitive processing. And I, I feel like a lot of, well, anyway, I feel like a lot of people might kind of uh, relate to that in a very immediate way. And so, like, mm-hmm. as someone who doesn't study sleep, I could imagine um, running a little experiment in my lab and asking people, well, how, how much sleep did you get last night? And, like, thinking that that would matter. But mm-hmm. then it seems like there's also the potential for a cumulative effect, you know, even just on cognition. Because if, if day by day this is impacting how you interact with the world and consolidate information than being chronically sleep deprived. It seems like would sort of affect, affect your long-term learning and representations and sort of how you interact with information. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that's definitely um, one of the areas that, that I'm really interested in. I've been thinking about quite a bit now is, <clears throat> is the, um, is in a sense how I how I think about it is it's almost an equity question, right? Mm-hmm. So different people have access to really good sleep. Different groups of people, populations of people, and different individuals have have differential access to good sleep, safe environments to feel comfortable in that they can rest at night, and that has really large implications for that cumulative question that we're talking about, right? How does long term sleep deprivation impact us? Well, a lot of that is well how how um, how vulnerable are you to long-term sleep deprivation um, as a person? And then um, some of my work now is really starting to ask questions about population level differences and how people um, might not have the safe environments to sleep in, um, might have, you know, different um, expectations of, of them from when it comes, as it comes to like workload or timing of work, um, consistent kind of um, shift work, things like mm-hmm. that, that might engage, that might impact their ability to really engage restful, restful sleep that's aligned with, with their, their biological needs. And that might lead to this, again, not really state versus trait, but this cumulative impact of sleep deprivation on their long-term cognitive health. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And it also, I mean, it kind of just demonstrates um, the broad ranging impact of, of, of sleep health, I guess, for mm-hmm. so many different areas. Um, but also sort of like all of the complex things that, that might impact how well we're sleeping. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that some of those are maybe physiological and just whatever is going on with my body, but a lot of them might be environmental or societal or um, mm-hmm. external that, you know, might be more or less modifiable. But in other words, if we wanted to, um, you know, improve sleep for a group of people, you know, it's maybe it sounds easy, but I, I bet it's really hard. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think, I think, you know, that's one of the things that excites me about sleep is that it is behavioral in a sense, right? So Mm -hmm. it can be modified. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that's universal and that we all do it. And it's also behavioral and that it's, I should say it's universal and that we all do it. Also, it's individualistic in that we all do it in different ways, Mm -hmm. but it's behavioral. So it's modifiable. So we can kind of um, prescribe different types of sleep for different Mm -hmm. types of people and hope that that kind of mitigates whatever, um, issues they're having with cognition, for example, or any other broader health outcome. So the idea that it's modifiable is really exciting, but I think it's one of the hardest, it is a very hard behavior to modify. Behavioral modification is not easy by any means, Mm -hmm. right? If it was, then we would all be exercising, all sleeping well. We would all be doing the, you know, Uh those those things that we know are supposed to be good for us. Um, So it's not easy to modify it, to modify it. And so when we're thinking about you know, anything that's outside of the individual and saying like, Hey, you know, we would like for you to get eight hours of sleep every night. We would like for you to go to bed at this time, wake up at this time, really try to take all the, take your phone and your um, computer screens and all that stuff out of your bedroom. Like all of these things that we would, that would help us sleep better are really hard things to, to impact. But then when you think about the overarching structural issues that um, create some of the behaviors that we see on the individual level, like for example, um, you know, working multiple jobs, right? Or cer- mm-hmm. certain things that mm-hmm. really make it more difficult to engage really good sleep. Um, that's when it's really, it's even harder to think about how you impact that and change that and shift that right. so that people could have better outcomes. Right. You can't just tell someone, well, I think you should get more sleep. So don't work that second <laughs> job that you like right. need for your family. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's what that, I mean, that's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. That's the reality mm-hmm. of it that I think a lot of it is out I think a lot of people recognize that sleep makes them feel good and that mm-hmm. when they get good sleep, they're more productive the next day. I really do think that is a generally accepted thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's competing forces. There's competing right. forces with sleep all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And there's this idea that you're not productive when you're sleeping. And so the first thing you want to cut back is on your sleep so that you can be more productive. Right. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you can't see me, but I'm like shirking and hiding because, because of course <laughs> I do that too. So, uh, yeah. So on the podcast, I'll, I'll point my finger at people and tell them to get more sleep, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe, you know, having talked about this general, um, these general issues, we could talk about one of your research papers, um, mm-hmm. uh, that you shared. So this is a 2016 paper, um, mm-hmm. autonomic activity during sleep predicts memory consolidation in humans. And, yeah. and maybe, you know, could you, could you kind of frame this to start with, assuming that, that our listeners don't know what autonomic activity is and sort of situate yeah. that in this systems level perspective that you have? Exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> this is a good example of kind of what we were, I was discussing earlier that when you get bad, when you don't have sleep really impacts multiple systems in both the brain and the body. Um, so when we think about the central nervous system, we think about the brain and the brain stem. We think about the different brain regions and how they interact with one another. That's really kind of 
a systems level approach to the brain. Um, but we also have all of these things that are below the neck <laughs> um, <laughs> that change um, as it relates to, they have their own circadian rhythms. That means that they are periodic, that, um, you know, heart activity changes on a periodic level, uh, um, uh, in a periodic way, such that you have increased activity at certain parts of the day and redu- reduced activity at different parts of the day. Um, you also have, you know, circadian um, impacts or different changes um, in immune activity, right? So that you create different types of um, immune responses at certain types of the day and that you increase or decrease them depending on the time of day. And what that tells me is that that might also correlate or be related to your sleep time. So circadian um, changes, you know, what happens throughout a 24 hour period of day, it's also really tightly related to um, sleep and that we sleep for the most part, many of us at a certain time of day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about kind of how these systems change and shift across the 24 hour day, we can start to really focus in on what's happening during the sleep period. Um, and what's happening during the sleep period is that, for example, your heart rate or your, the activity of the heart, I should say more broadly, shifts and changes as a me- as, as it relates to two kind of main systems, um, the, par- the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system, which are two of the main kind of regulatory um, systems guiding the autonomic nervous system. Um, so the parasympathetic system is really associated with our rest and digest system um, in any sort of kind of psych 101 course or intro cocktail mm-hmm. course. Um, we think about these two systems antagonistically, but the truth is, is that um, while the parasympathetic nervous system is really associated with rest and digest and the sympathetic system is really associated with kind of energy mobilization, increasing blood flow um, or what we would call fight or flight um, they also work synergistically. So we can increase both of these systems. We can decrease both of these systems and we can, they can actually go up and down, um, antagonistic to each other. So, um, that, that system really regulates a lot of the, um, activity of our periphery or everything that below the the central nervous system, everything Mm -hmm. below the neck. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I, back to kind of the original question, when I think about what's happening in that below the neck and also thinking about what's happening in the brain during sleep, we're trying to understand how those two, how the brain and the periphery are associated with one another became a really big interest of mine in graduate school. And, and so in the paper, you looked at a memory task. Uh, can you, yeah. can you kind of talk us through that? Yeah, of course. So this was a, a really interesting task. So, um, it was based out of a, um, a previous paper um, by Denise Kai um, in 2009, where they looked at this remote associates task. So the remote associates task is a really well-known task. It was developed by Sarnoff Lennick in 1962, I believe. So really been used very often in in, cogn- in cognitive research, really associated with um, creativity. So um, the task basically is you see three different words um, and you're asked to find a fourth word that is related to all three of those words. So you can imagine how that's tapping into kind of association processes um, and really creativity, being able to see the three words, create a relationship between between each of those words with a completely with a, a fourth word that you're not cued to at all. You have to come up with that kind of in your from your from your own brain. So that's mm-hmm. exciting. Um, it's an interesting task. Can I just interrupt? Do you have an example of of can we, can we, can yes. we play along at home? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great question. So, for example, we actually give an example in the paper. Um, so the example of three words would be cookies, 16, and heart. So those are the three words, cookies, 16, and heart. And your job is to find a, um, a fourth word that would be related to all three of those words 
but in and of itself. So not, not a sentence that uses all three of those words, but just mm-hmm. a, a fourth word. So the example for that, for cooking 16 in part, the answer to that would be sweet. And so how do you connect mm-hmm. these, those three words to sweet? Cookies are sweet. You can have a sweet 16 and you can also have a sweet heart. Mm, okay. Um, and so another important thing is that the grammar of how those words are related can be very different. Mm-hmm. Right. Gotcha. Okay. That's so tricky. That's to, Just so it is tricky. Yeah, yeah. It's uh-huh, hard. Uh-huh. Yep, so okay. generally, generally we give people get about 40%. So if we give people, um, let's say 10 words, they'll get about four of them. Oh, 10, 10 problems. They'll get about four of them. So it's a really difficult task. It's not mm-hmm. something that people are easily doing at home. It's mm-hmm. actually quite, it's quite difficult, but it's an exciting task. I think it really taps into our associational processes really mm-hmm. nicely. Yep. Um, okay. So then what we did in this paper, which we pulled from um, the paper by um, Dr. Kai is we try to basically create these different memory conditions. Um, and so the first condition was just a novel, a, a no cue condition. So we called it. Um, and that just meant that people did the problems, the problems that I just identified. They did 10 of those problems exactly the way those problems are. There was no just basic creative kind of memory, problem, basic creative associative processing. There was no um, kind of memory condition in the first condition. The mm-hmm. second condition is what we call called our repeated condition. And so in this condition, individuals did those 10 problems. They had a period of time where they, um, a period of what we call incubation time. And during that incubation time, they either had an episode of sleep or they had a wake episode. Um, and then after that period of sleep or wake, they then did the same exact problems that they saw previously again. This is kind of a real explicit memory cueing task. So you see exactly the same things. You have a period of incubation and then they see the same things again after. Mm-hmm. And then the second um, memory cued condition or the third condition total was um, what we called a primed condition. And so in this condition, individuals saw the, the initial problems in the morning. After they saw those initial problems, they did this analogy task. This analogy task, they basically saw very traditional kind of SAT analogies, you know, mm-hmm. like the whiteout is to pen as a racer is to, and the answer would be pencil. So yep. that's a basic analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we really wanted people to get these right. So for this, for this particular study, we actually gave them the first letter of the correct answer. So wow. we were really trying to get people to get these analogies right. Mm-hmm. And they were very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that analogy task, similar to the, all, all the other conditions, individuals had a period of time where they um, either were awake or they slept, um, again, an incubation period. And then after that, they were tested on new remote associate problems. So the three words and they had to find the fourth word, but those problems, the answers to those problems. So the, the answer to the fourth, the fourth word that they could find was the same exact answer as to the analogies. So in this, that condition, we're really trying to prime the answers in the evening using that analogy task. So if okay. they could remember one, the analogy answers, and then to use those answers in a different context in the context of this task, then they were able to do well on that on that primed condition. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that we understand the task, how did sleep affect affect performance? Yeah, that's great. So, um, what previous what the previous study that um, Kai et al. project had found is that it was really necessary for individuals to have a slap, uh, have a slap. Oh my goodness, sorry, a nap, <laughs> <Uh-huh>. <laughs> sleep and nap somehow <laughs> got uh-huh. connected <laughs> um, to have a a episode of sleep that included the two main um, types of sleep. So sleep is broken down into non rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. Those are the two main types. Rapid eye movement sleep is um, a 
a period of sleep where the brain is slightly more activated compared to non-REM. There's increased desynchronization across different brain regions. That means that the EEG looks like kind of short, um, short high frequency waves compared to non-rapid eye movement sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also increased communication across brain regions during rapid eye movement sleep. That means that the cortex, for example, is, is communicating with the hippocampus pretty readily um, and they're sending kind of signals back and forth to each other. Non-rapid eye movement sleep is, um, a, a, in, a, in a sense, the brain kind of slows down. It's typically what people think about when they think about sleep, right? There's a, there's a, a reduction in neural activity across the cortex um, for the most part, there's these really um, kind of high, um, high, low frequency waves called slow oscillations or delta frequency waves that are really just a synchronization of neuronal firing across the cortex. So that means that neurons are firing together and they're also silenced together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really kind of see this really slow um, wave kind of take over the, 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 the cortex. Really, this wave starts in the, the frontal cortex and kind of extends throughout the rest of the, the cortical areas. And so these two different kind of oscillatory dynamics during sleep are associated with different memory outcomes. So the previous study had found that rapid eye movement sleep seemed to be necessary for people to do well in that primed memory condition that we talked about before. So it looked like the um, kind of neural dynamics of rapid eye movement sleep allowed for these associational processes to happen without kind of external influence. Again, because you're sleeping, there was no new information coming in. So you're able to kind of move these these things around, um, create this associ- associational um, time in the brain that allows things to move from one area to another. Um, and as a as an outcome, when you wake up, you seem to be perform better on that primed memory task. Mm-hmm. For the other memory conditions, the novel condition, there didn't seem to be an impact of sleep at all. Um, and for the repeated memory condition, people seem to perform well if they had just non-REM sleep or if they had both non-REM and REM sleep. So it didn't seem to be as as REM sleep dependent as the other task was. Um, um, so, so that was the previous studies, pre- mm-hmm. previous findings. Mm-hmm. And in that study, they really only focused on the, the different dynamics of the brain. So they really looked only at non-REM and REM sleep. They didn't consider what was happening in the body, right? They didn't consider that during sleep, we also have these changes to the periphery. And so in this paper, we were really interested in extending their findings to understand what's going on in the periphery during sleep and how does that relate to these different memory outcomes. And we focused in on this particular measure called high frequency heart rate variability um, that seems to be related to the parasympathetic nervous system. So it seems to be related to kind of this increased increased activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, which makes sense, right? During sleep, you're, you're, you're going into this kind of rest state. You have increased parasympathetic activation, and that seems to be... Um, really uh, associated with better kind of health outcomes after, as, as I should say, it's associated with good health outcomes that are, that, that are linked to sleep. Mm-hmm. And so we focused in on that measure as in, in this paper. And what we found was that the similar kind of findings that non-REM sleep and REM, non-REM and REM sleep seem to support that explicit memory condition and that only a nap with REM sleep seemed to support that prime condition. So we were re- able to replicate the previous findings. And then in addition to that, we found that when we looked at what, what about sleep contributed to the, the performance outcomes that we saw post sleep, we found that the nap with REM sleep 
both minutes in REM sleep, so kind of the central nervous system, the electroencephalographic patterns that happen. So the REM sleep itself was associated with better perform, uh, was associated with performance. Um, but high frequency heart rate variability during REM specifically, so the periphery during REM seemed to also be associated with better memory performance for both the explicit condition and the prime condition and accounted for a significant amount of variance in that, out, in, in that performance. Um, and so that was really interesting to us because before this paper, uh, no one had really made those connections between the periphery and the brain and how mm-hmm. they might be um, kind of interdependent on one another and also predicting these, these, these performance outcomes. That's really interesting. So, I, I mean, in my, you know, being a novice in this area, I think when you talk about REM sleep or non-REM sleep or sort of like sleep stages based on EEG, I have mm-hmm. some, you know, I have some framework for that. Um, mm-hmm. But it sounds like what you're saying is then the peripheral measures really complement those. And so it's not uh, it's not just like, oh, it's another way to learn about the same thing that we already measure with the EG. It's a complementary system that you're able to tap into. Is that right? That is right. That's right. Um, so it doesn't seem to be accounting for the same the same variance in performance, right? So mm-hmm. we, we've shown before that these different kind of EEG measures account for memory performance. We've shown that previously. But in, in when we add these peripheral measures, we're, we're finding that they're accounting for variance over and above what those measures account for by themselves. Otherwise, it would would be a wash, right? If they were accounting for the same mm-hmm. amount of variance, it would just be a wash. But we're actually finding that they increase the what we know. How does breathing, uh, sorry, not to pull you down another rabbit hole, but how does yeah. breathing um, tie into this uh, yeah. in terms of parasympathetic and sympathetic influences on heart rate or so on? Yeah, that's really great. So, um Breathing. So we think about the periphery, we think about all these different organs that are in the periphery, right? So um, your heart and your lungs are very intimately connected and related to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ways in which you um, kind of take in oxygen, you oxygenate blood and that blood then circulates throughout the body, right? And so the heart periodicity, how your heart's beating is related to the oxygen intake. Um, and the ways in which respiration, so respiration, the rate at which you're breathing also impacts the ways in which your heart rate beats. And so the, the innervation from um, the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system takes account, takes an account both your breathing rate as well as your heart periodicity and how those two things are impacting each other. Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking at high frequency heart rate variability, we're actually looking at the impact of respiration, um, which is innervated from the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system on heart rate. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the background kind of, the, that's the science behind what we're trying to extract. We're extracting that as a measure of parasympathetic nervous system activation, but what's really happening is that the way in which we breathe impacts heart periodicity and changes, makes it faster or slower depending mm-hmm. on um, how fast we're breathing. Cause I, my, my two anecdotal, you know, bits of information or whatever, but one is, you know, if I wake up in the night uh, and the older I get, the harder it is for me to fall back asleep. So when I was younger, mm-hmm. I would wake up and I'd I'd fall right back asleep because I was tired. And and now uh, that doesn't happen. But if I'm aware of my heart beating fast, then mm-hmm. I usually you know try to concentrate on slowing my breathing down and just relaxing and being very, it's very like conscious and top down. Um, mm-hmm. But that usually seems to then you know help me relax and lower my heart rate and then and then I'll fall back asleep. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other thing is I. 
uh, I started after after years of not doing uh, regular exercise. Last year, I started running again, uh, mm. and my sleep got like well, not immediately, but very soon, it got mm-hmm. a lot better, which was great. I make I kind of figured that might happen, but I was surprised to see it. So um, yeah, that was really that was good. So I have to I have to keep that up. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Those are really those are two really great examples, exactly of how kind of respiration impacts your parasympathetic activation, which then can drive you to feel calm, rest and calm and able to engage rest. Um, and then the kind of activation while you're running, the the, the, the breathing and all that stuff is, is in a sense, it kind of drives your your homeostatic. Um, so should step back and say um, sleep is homeostatic and that um, if you don't, if you get sleep, if you're sleep deprived and you don't get sleep, your body will drive your sleep. You have this kind of um, mechanism that will increase your sleep pressure, increase your, your, your need for sleep. So when you're, you don't get enough sleep, but say you stay up full and all nighter for a test, or you have, you have twins and you're crying all <laughs> uh-huh. night uh-huh. Um, and you need to engage it, your body will kind of, it would increase its desire to push yourself to sleep. Um, and we call that sleep pressure or your homeo, your sleep homeostat. Um, and the other main influence is the circadian rhythm, which we talked, I talked about briefly earlier, but it's um, linked into this as well. But when you exercise, that actually kind of drives not only your autonomic system, but also a lot of things neurally, right? We know that there's a lot of kind of um, important implications for exercise on um, on, cell- on the neural cell life, right? Cellular yeah. life. So um, that also impacts your, your desire to want to sleep, right? Using kind of using energy in that way will also have a, implications for increasing your homeostatic drive for sleep and helping you kind of repair and... Um, and rejuvenate the body. Um, mm-hmm. So both of those things are both, you know, relaxing yourself and breathing deeply is going to help you kind of in, impact your, your sleep, your sleep. And then also exercising throughout the day, especially if you do it within, you know, three to four hours before you expect to fall asleep, that's really going to help you um, kind of push you to sleep at night. So those are two great examples. Mm-hmm. So I wonder uh, before we end, I, I'm going to ask you for just to remind all of us or to tell us about like sleep hygiene, um, mm. you know, what are the habits and, and things that we can do that are in our control um, to try to have better sleep and, and sort of, I guess a part of that is like, have you, has the way you've thought about this changed, you know, as you've kind of progressed in your research? Yeah. You know, I, I think every time I, I, um, Think of, yeah, my, my understanding of sleep hygiene has changed so dramatically, <laughs> uh-huh. I would say. Uh-huh. It's such a hard, um, it's, I mean, honestly, it's such a hard thing to think about because back to our earlier conversation about kind of the equity issues around this, right? There's so many structural ways in which it's hard to engage good sleep mm-hmm. that are almost completely out of your control. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this context, I like to say when sleep is um, in your control, when you can figure out like when you have, you know, a safe place to sleep at night, when you have control over your day and your schedule, when all of those things are within your capacity, there are some things you could do to help you get better sleep at night. Um, when those things are outside of your control, that really goes to kind of activism, political work and that, that, that stuff, right? Mm-hmm, but um, mm-hmm. when it is in your control, when you have the ability to kind of shape your sleep schedule, the first thing I always say is get rid of guilt around sleep. So I think a lot of people have this kind of um, productivity sleep trade-off in their mind. So they, they're like, oh, if I'm sleeping, I'm not being productive. Let me push sleep off so that I can be more productive. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things I always tell people is like, get rid of sleep guilt, right? You know, oh, I could be spending more time with 
this or that. I could be working longer, especially when it's around working. Like get mm-hmm. rid of that guilt. It's so important to your overall health to sleep well. And so I, I really advocate for people prioritizing sleep as, as you would prioritize exercise, as you would prioritize eating well, as you would prioritize taking your medications. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I advocate for people to get rid of sleep guilt. Just throw that away. You should not feel sleep but guilty for for making sleep important to you and for protecting that time as you would anything else that was valuable to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say that's the first thing. Um, other things that I suggest people to do is really try to keep a regular sleep schedule. Um, so a lot of, a lot of us set alarms. So wake us up in the morning. Like I think you were alluding to, I also encourage people to set alarms. to go to sleep at night. So put an mm-hmm. alarm on your phone that says, Hey, it's 11 PM. I'm going to go to bed now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Keep that alarm. Even if you work till 11.15, keep that alarm at 11 p.m. because that's going to start to trigger your body to say, oh, actually, I'm, I'm tired now. Like it's time. Like, I'm actually getting tired. Just the alarm going off itself could potentially start triggering that for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you brush your teeth or something like that, go ahead and keep that alarm in your day because it can help regulate you. And yeah, and I think that there's other things that that, are, that have been discussed before. Kind of try to keep light out of your bedroom, you know, keep your TV, your phone, your tablets. They have all these new blue light filters and you can do the, the uh, wake to night transition on your phone and all of those things. I actually encourage people to use those tools. Um, definitely engage in those things. Try to keep the light in, in your coming into your um, eyes really low when you're sleeping, when, mm-hmm. when you're getting close to sleep time. Uh, light is kind of our most present trigger to be awake. Um, and it used to just be outside light. It used to be just the sun that would trigger us to be awake. But, you know, over the last um, couple of decades, we've had this more and more kind of intrusive light in our environments. And so I would, I would say, you know, try to keep that out as much as you can, turn them off when you can, especially close to your bedtime. And then I think one of the last important things that I usually say is that if you have a safe place that you let, that you sleep, your bedroom, and that's safe, and it's comfortable for you to sleep, make it the most comfortable, safe, warm place you could possibly think, right? So make sure that you set your thermostat to a good temperature so that you're not too hot, you're not too cold while you're sleeping. Keep stressful things out of the bedroom, right? If your phone is a place where you get a lot of alerts, keep that out, keep that away from you mm-hmm. as far away from your bed as you possibly can. And really just make that bedroom really soft and, and warm and, and inviting as much as you can. Mm-hmm. That all sounds like good advice. And, and I imagine, I don't know if there's actually research on this, but, but kind of going back to the whole sleep guilt and productivity, yeah. you know, trade-off, um, it probably is a false trade-off, right? Because, yeah. you know, if, you know, hopefully we're all in this life for the long run and not just for a day or two. Uh, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah, maybe tonight I can get that one thing done by staying up an extra hour or two or pulling an all-nighter, but like over the next 10 years, what's going to mm-hmm. make me quote unquote, more productive. And, and of course, I'm, you know, maybe we shouldn't be thinking about productivity anyway. And we have to think about other parts of our life, like our, our health and so on. But I, mm-hmm. maybe even if you can't, you know, even if you're forced to think about productivity, I bet taking care of your, your sleep and your body in the long run buys us more anyway. Oh, for sure. Yeah. There, there's, there is, um, I'm not asking with that the literature on this particular question, but there is literature looking at like, you know, what does it mean to save an extra hour versus mm-hmm. get that hour of sleep and mm-hmm. how well you perform the next day. There's, there's quite a bit of people who look into kind of that sleep productivity trade-off. So there's mm-hmm. some literature around that. Um, I'm less familiar with it, but what I will say just from my background in sleep science, that if you, if you prioritize your sleep at night, your next day is more productive, whether productive mm-hmm. means 
actually productive on whatever work assignment that you have or productive in your social life with your relationships, mm-hmm. productive with generally your health, your, you know, your, mm-hmm. your health and wellness, um, productive with your, your, your ability to have energy to navigate that day. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so again, thinking about how we define success is really important right. when it comes to these things. But, right. um, but I, yeah, from my, from, from my standpoint, if you prioritize your sleep, you will have better outcomes the next day. But also, like you said, that cumulative effect across, across decades of your life for sure. Great. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I learned a lot and I'm also encouraged to go get more sleep. That's part of my, my mission in life. So I'm, I'm happy to share that with you and that you can get rid of your sleep guilt and, and get sleep when you, when you feel um, your body needs it. Great. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes, tell a friend who might enjoy it, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. You can also support The Brain Made Plain on Patreon and get access to longer interviews and other goodies. Go to patreon.com slash brainmadeplain. As always, links for every episode can be found on the website, thebrainmadeplain.net. Thanks for listening.